we will read the Bible from John 9, uh, verse 1 to 41. Jesus healed a man born blind. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parent that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parent sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he split on the ground, made some mud uh, with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, was in the pool of Siloam. This word means sand. So the man went and was and came home, saying, His neighbor and those who had fallen, seen him begin us. He said, This the same man who used to sit and beg. Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Who then were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They broke to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind, nor the day on which is which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I was, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such sign? So they were divided. Then the, they turned again to the blind man, who have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still didn't believe that the, he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parent. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? Has it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind, but now he can see. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said, said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. 
He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become a disciple too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are the fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What are we blind to? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Thank you, Mark and Annie. Hopefully. Uh, It's a testimony to Tim and Graham that we normally don't notice the sound at all, do we? But thank you for uh, sorting that out for us. Well, let me tell you about Mr. Davenport. Mr. Davenport was my design tech teacher when I was at school. And Mr. Davenport decided that I was useless. He said, and I quote, there's Idol, there's Bone Idol, and there's Colin Taylor. (laughs) And to be fair, in his lessons, I was Bone Idol, because I'd the combination of subjects I'd chosen at the end of school meant I did nine subjects instead of the usual eight. So I thought, I don't need nine subjects. Uh, this will be my um, reflection, of, reflection period, let's call it that. Just messed about in his lesson. So I did in his lesson behave like an idiot. But had he gone through my track record in other subjects where I was doing better and kept treating me like I was bone idle... That would have been, I was doing all right in those lessons, so that would have been 
illogical and willfully be blind, ignoring of the facts if he still treated me like an idiot. Uh, I don't know if you remember Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. It was big in the early 2000s, I think. And the main character says this. Every faith in the world is based on fabrication. That's the definition of faith. Acceptance of that which we imagine to be true, that which we cannot prove. In other words, he's saying uh, faith is just wishful thinking in, in despite of the evidence against it. And that just really, Dan Brown there is just reflecting what lots of people think, that to believe in Jesus is to believe in something for which there is no evidence. Well, in this chapter, Jesus' conversation with this blind man whom he heals, uh, it bookended, bookends the chapter. And in between, we've got several conversations in which people weigh up the evidence of this man's healing and what it means about Jesus who healed him. And what we'll see is a complete reversal of that sort of Dan Brown way of thinking, Da Vinci Code way of thinking of faith. We'll see that the healed man carefully, logically, rationally examines the evidence, switches his brain on and thinks, evaluates, reasons, and this leads him to faith in Jesus. Whereas the Pharisees only maintain that, can only maintain their lack of faith by willfully, irrationally ignoring the evidence and stopping thinking, switching the brains off. The man who is blind seen with increasing insight and those who claim to see everything right already demonstrating their own spiritual blindness. So there's an outline in your leaflets. Um, we're going to start in looking at verses 1 to 12. I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. Verse 1. The disciples assume that there's a direct link between sin, rebelling against God, doing wrong things, and this man's blindness. Either this man's sin or his parents' sin. They want to connect those two things. Now, people born with blindness today can lead full, as full lives as the rest of us. But in this man's society, he would have been severely disadvantaged. He would have suffered from his blindness, and he had to beg for a living. Now, how do we look at suffering and sin together? Well, we know from Genesis' account of sin coming into the world and God's curse on the world in response to that. We know that sin in a general way does cause suffering and struggle in the world. So in that way, suffering is to remind us of the seriousness of sin. It's a warning to us that sin causes death. But Jesus, in this instance, won't allow for a direct line to be drawn between this man's blindness and his or his parents' sin. Jesus won't allow for that. But neither will Jesus allow that this man's suffering from blindness is pointless or random. Verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. Obviously, they must have sinned, but he's saying it's not to do with his blindness. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, God has a purpose for this man's suffering. 
And a common objection to God's existence is the question of how can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering? Well, the Bible tells us God is all-powerful and all-loving, yes. It also tells us that God is all-knowing, that God is eternal, that God is fair and just. And, And indeed, our sense of unfairness about suffering comes from God. We care because he cares, and in fact, he cares about it more than we do. So we can trust God is in control and has good purposes that we might not even be able to imagine. And in Jesus, he's put himself through unimaginable suffering on the cross to save us and win us forgiveness. Unimaginable suffering to bring us unimaginable good. Now, if you or someone you know is suffering in anguish right now, please don't hear me invalidating or diminishing your suffering. Um, I'm not telling you off for not being comforted by God's sovereignty. I'm not saying just cheer up. But Jesus says that even if we can't possibly imagine what it could be, God has a good purpose for our suffering. And as we look at, as we look at in the Hope Explored course, for those of us belonging to Jesus, the worst thing is never the final thing. The worst thing is never the final thing. So to help us see God's purpose behind this um, man born with blindness, blindness here's some background so hundreds of years before jesus god made promises to his people to send a rescuer and through the prophet isaiah he told us lots of things about this rescuer who would be so isaiah 42 6 and 7 he'd be a light for the gentiles to open eyes that are blind to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness So God's people at this point in history are metaphorically blind or in the dark. The kind of darkness you feel when you've fallen out with a friend or family or you've had a fight at home, it feels dark, doesn't it? Or if you've been excluded by a clique, you didn't get the invite. You've been kept in the dark. Well, we've all in our own way turned against God, breaking our relationship with him. And that, left to our own devices, would leave us in the dark. And the Bible is clear that's a terrible place to be in now. And particularly when we die, being cut off from God, left in the dark permanently. But God promises to send a rescuer who will bring us out of darkness and into the light to enjoy relationship in light with God. And then Jesus says, verse 5, I am the light of the world. Jesus is claiming to be that rescuer, claiming that he can save us from spiritual blindness. Jesus is claiming that we need him to be brought out of the dark and into the light. And this promise is just one of several servant songs in Isaiah, and there's lots of other prophecies about Jesus in the the Old Testament. So it's a bit like, you know when police investigators get eyewitnesses to do an e-photo fit of who they saw? So here's a slide. Here's some that have gone a bit wrong. 
So I think uh, me and Peter are in trouble, that bottom right one. It could be us. Find yourself in there. They're pretty awful, aren't they? Take those down there, distracting. But a really good one helps. The servant songs in Isaiah, they provide us with a really good e-photo fit of what this rescue will be like. It helps us know what to expect. And Jesus healing this man is part of showing that he fits the bill perfectly. John 9, 6 and 7. After saying this, Jesus spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Born blind, and now he sees. Amazing miracle. Unheard of before. Now, in, this, in the reading, Jesus steps out of the conversation until verse 35, and John's eyewitness account turns a bit, it's a bit more like CSI Jerusalem, as people weigh up the evidence of just what has, what's just happened. So the man's neighbors check him out. Is it really him? But it's so incredible. Some of them are like, no, it can't be him. He just looks like him. And notice as he writes this, John, this gospel writer, doesn't cherry pick the facts to convince us of this miracle. He also includes the case against this miracle. That's one of the reasons we can trust this account. It's, it's a warts and all account. Like verse 12, where is this man? They asked the blind man. I don't know, he said. Of course he doesn't know. He's never seen him. And when you think about it, it's just the kind of conversation you'd expect from ordinary people trying to make sense of an extraordinary event. So let's have a look at verse 13 to 34 and pick out the trajectory. First of all, look at the Pharisees and then of uh, the man himself. So first of all, too blind to see. The Pharisees are too blind to see. Excuse me. So a man blind from birth has just been healed. And that's remarkable in and of itself. But add to that the prophecies from Isaiah hanging in the air on everyone's lips. Surely those experts in the Bible will be excited about the miracle or at least intrigued. Well, no. What they're most bothered about is that it happened on a Sabbath. A day for which they created Many rules about what you couldn't do, including you're not allowed to make clay, you can't spit on the floor and make in the dust, and you can't heal. That's against their rules. So verse 15, they're more concerned with how Jesus healed the man rather than that this man could see for the very first time in his life. And after hearing all the evidence, even twice... They're still fixated. Verse 26. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? It's like, you know, when you're trying to tell somebody an anecdote or a funny story and they fixate on the details. A funny thing happened to me the other day. All right, what day was this? Well, well, it's Tuesday, but that doesn't matter. Anyway, I bumped into an old friend. Oh, how long have you known them? How did you end up colliding with them? No, that's not the point. I'm trying to tell you a story. That's what the Pharisees are doing. Verse 16, some can see what is literally staring them in the face, but it's not even enough for them. 
So they call in the man's parents. I mean, the poor fellow. Can you imagine having your parents called in to parents' evening at work? It would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Well, the Pharisees have already made up their minds that they're against Jesus. So it's hard for the parents to say anything good about Jesus. Because in verse 22, being put out of the synagogue, that would have had huge social and practical implications for them. So they had to be careful what they said. And so verse 24, they get the healed man back in again. And they're basically saying to him, just tell us what we want to hear. But the man is steadfast. He'll only give them the facts. He'll only give them the hard evidence. And John uses the humor of the situation to show just how ridiculous the, denial, the Pharisees' denial of the patently obvious is. And there's a play on the word no. So verse 24, they say, we know this man is a sinner. Verse 25, the man replies, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do, no. I was blind, but now I see. He's holding up to them how, clay, how silly their claim to know Jesus is a sinner is when put with this plain and simple evidence that he can see now. And he's using sarcasm to show he knows that they've already made up their minds. Verse 26 to 27. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? The more they ask him, the more it shows that whatever the evidence, they've already decided. It's like debates and arguments on Facebook, on social media. Let me tell you now, in terms of persuading someone, social media is not the place to go. You know, Facebook is where you go to let everyone know how entrenched your position is and then dig that trench even deeper. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. The truth is bombarding them. A man blind from birth is talking to them and can see. But it's still not enough for them. And the man doesn't sink to their level. He, he could just keep appealing to the evidence of the miracle. Instead, he uses reasoning and logic to do what the Pharisees are failing to do. To consider what his healing means. The Pharisees, verse 29, they claim they don't know Jesus from God. So the man lays it out for them. Simple logic. He says, he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't answer sinners. We know he answers the godly who do his will. This miracle has never happened before. If he wasn't from God, he couldn't have done this. So the inference, he is from God. His reasoning is watertight. They've got no rational comeback so all we've got left to do is attack the man's character. You were steeped in sin at birth, completely blind to that they themselves were steeped in sin at birth. See, the Pharisees are blinded by their self-sufficiently. They think they already know everything, that all their assumptions are correct. They're confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, and it causes them to react against him, to screw their eyes up, put their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 la. So is that you this morning? Have you written off considering Jesus is objectively real and his claims true? 
His claim that you need him to save you is the most important claim you'll ever consider. So I urge anyone to don't dismiss Jesus just because everyone else does. Just because the intellectual framework we grow up with tells you to not even consider the evidence. Have you written off Jesus because deep down you know if you believe in him it will mean great change? Well, you'd be right. Following Jesus means giving your life over to him, denying yourself. And sometimes that can feel like part of you is dying. But Jesus, just over the page in chapter 10, Jesus says, promises, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Briefly then, let's have a look at what happens to this man, the blind man, as he looks at the evidence, his 2020 vision. Did you notice that throughout the narrative, how this man describes Jesus changes? So in verse 11, he says, he's the man they call Jesus. And then in verse 17, when faced with the question, how could a sinner perform such signs? The man concludes that Jesus must be a prophet. And then verse 33, using reason and logic, he concludes that Jesus must be from God. And then finally, verse 38, when Jesus asks him if he believes that he is the son of man, that Jesus is God's rescuer promised through the prophets, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him comes to believe in Jesus. When I worked in a, as a radiographer back in the olden days before everything went digital, we'd quite often have to use a dark room, like a photography dark room, completely blacked out except for a dim red light. And at first you walked in, you couldn't see anything. But gradually, over a few minutes, your eyes got used to the red light and you could see in great detail. For this healed man... There's no sudden conversion here, no immediate emotional response. But a clear-headed, ordinary man weighing up extraordinary evidence and coming to a reasonable conclusion. Jesus is God's rescuer. And then taking that step of faith, I believe. And an encouragement for all of us as we seek to share Jesus with people who don't know him, is that he came to this belief in the face of opposition, under pressure to deny Jesus. Indeed, seeing the irrationality of the Pharisees' stance, being told not to believe in Jesus, despite all the evidence, actually helped him to believe. Opposition to Jesus won't stop people coming to faith as I wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? And notice we're not called to a blind faith in Jesus. We have these eyewitness accounts, the Gospels, like the man who was healed. We can weigh up the things Jesus said and did. Jesus claimed to be God's rescuer, to save us, forgive us, and give us eternal life. Jesus claimed to be God himself. They're extraordinary claims, unique claims, but that doesn't make them not true. 
to look at the evidence, see where it leads you, see where it leads your friends and family, and ask, is my objection to Jesus or other people's objection to Jesus, is it against the evidence or is it against Jesus himself? So if you already believe in, in Jesus, like most of us here this morning, don't let anyone accuse you of setting your brain to one side in order to believe Jesus. Now, in fact, the reverse is true. It's only a blind faith in preconceived assumptions about what can be true that allows anyone to dismiss, dismiss Jesus out of hand. Last section then. Do you see? Do you see? That's the question. Do you see? Do you believe Jesus is the light of the world, rescuing us from the darkness of separation from God? You see, light can have two effects. It can illuminate and show us the way, or it can blind us. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Jesus is saying he'll flick people one way or the other. Jesus is God's rescuer. He is how God has loved us, saving us whilst we were still turning our backs on him. And every time we encounter Jesus in, in the Bible or in prayer, there's no neutral ground. There's no fence that we sit on. We either move towards him in belief and trust, either for the first time or deeper and fuller, or we'll move out further away further into our own self-sufficiency, like the Pharisees, blindly convinced we've got it all sorted. Verse 40. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you, claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, those who know they need rescuing to those who know they need rescuing Jesus light gives spiritual sight to see him but his light also blinds the self-sufficient handing them over to their belief in themselves to sum up what we've seen then uh, we began thinking about suffering and as we encounter suffering just think of this man's mum and dad when he was born born blind they must have been thinking well they must have been asking God why him why us wouldn't you love to be able to go and show them that more than 2,000 years later their son's story is still bringing people to faith God is in control God is good even if it might take eternity to find out how in our particular circumstance. And we've seen through this conversation of Jesus and the conversations it prompts that there's no please leave your brain outside sign on churches or on the Bible. Our faith is the coming together of all our faculties of reason, logic, weighing up the evidence and God opening our eyes to who Jesus is. We've seen that we can be encouraged in sharing Jesus because opposition to him won't stop people coming to faith in him and might actually help that happen. And we've seen that our response to the light is key. Will you turn away from Jesus 
retreating into your self-sufficiency? Or will you follow the trail of evidence and trust him to rescue you into the abundant life you were made for? Will you see the light? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your grace and mercy to this man. And thank you that his healing helps us to see that Jesus is the rescuer king who brings us abundant, eternal life. Uh, Please help us to keep weighing up the evidence, to help others, point others to Jesus and keep weighing up the evidence. And please break through by your spirit, hardened hearts, to turn to him in faith. Amen.